0: Most of the world lives on the edge of calamity. I mean, they just do. The Western experience is a a totally, I would say, fake existence that that we are so privileged to be living, that we're, we're so privileged to be living the fake existence that we do that we forget how fake it is and just how real the consequences are of our stupidity.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep There and Watson. My guest today is Doomberg. Doomberg is an anonymous account that comments on markets, geopolitics, commodities, and is one of the absolute best translators of the complex, opaque world of natural resources, energy, and commodities to an audience of tens of thousands thirsty to understand. As evidenced by the name, Doonberg has some less than optimistic expectations for the near and mid-term future, but simultaneously carries optimism about the ability to impact positive change and for the worst case scenarios to be avoided if our leaders are able to act In this conversation that is far-reaching, we talk about some specific arenas of risk and concern, the reality that energy equals life, and the potential for it to, and the potential for our leaders misunderstanding that to disproportionately affect those in the lowest socioeconomic statuses, and how Doomberg's business and brand have grown over the last year. So much good stuff in here. Does get a little dark, but heck, it wouldn't be an interview with Doomberg without that being the case. Here is my conversation with Doomberg. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So, Doomberg, I'm excited to be talking with you.
0: Aaron, it's great to be here. A couple of weeks in the making, and I'm glad we we're able to get together.
1: Absolutely. And uh, you know, sometimes we'll have guests on and we'll say, you know, this is their first podcast, which is always an exciting experience. But in, in my case, you're a first, you're my first uh, anon to come on the podcast. Yeah. So uh I, I want to kind of get into a little bit of that down the line, but to just kick things off. The name Doomberg, the uh if people are watching on YouTube, Icon or 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 uh Logo of sorts is a green chicken. I was explaining to my business partner before we started recording. You know how it's like, you know, Chicken Little, sky is falling, and uh, some people maybe you know close their ears to the uh, the warnings that were coming in. There's kind of an obvious, on the nose, kind of connection to some of these ideas. But to start things off, this the, the sense of doom, the framework for why one would have the negative outlook that you do on a macro basis, on a macro picture. Can you kind of just summarize that for people, or at least give us an entree and we'll dig into it a little bit more?
0: You bet. Um, I would say at the outset that um, both myself and and the Dunberg team individually at the micro level are very optimistic people. Um, We live uh, wonderful, fulfilling lives. Um, We're very giving people uh, to a fault sometimes, to be totally honest with you in, in the business that we've been trying to build together over the past several years. And the character of the green chicken And the name Doomburg and the brand iconography around it that we have developed flows from that base of optimism. But in in a sense, um, the Doomburg brand and the things we write about are meant to try to get ahead of potential catastrophes that we see coming to explain the basis of why we think we may be on certain paths uh, that are suboptimal that might lead to substantial negative consequences for humans. We're a very human-centric organization. We're very empathetic. We're very caring very giving uh, all the things we talked about earlier and and so uh we view our job at the sort of highest level as content creators to explain non-finance concepts to finance people in a language they can understand and that is the inefficiency in the content creator market that we were looking to exploit because we are anonymous for a variety of reasons not the least of which um is the brand it it, it You need to stick out. So the sort of the first rule of marketing is can't be remembered if you don't stick out. And the green chicken, you know, every impression we get on Twitter of the green chicken with the stunned sort of funny eyes, uh, which are the core to the brand, makes us memorable and uh, gets us in the zeitgeist. And you can't uh, affect change if people don't listen to your arguments and you can't get people to listen to your arguments if they don't read you. And brand is just one of five pillars as we've created this content creation business that we think a lot about and we are sort of experts in, in our real life, um, I should say in our real life, we run a, a bespoke consulting firm uh, where we are essentially a think tank for hire for you know family offices and C-suite executives. Our team is composed of people with decades of experience in heavy industry and the commodity sector, which is probably 60 to 70% of what we write about. Uh, we sprinkle in a little bit of geopolitics and some crypto, but by and large, uh, we are optimistic people. We are giving people and, um, we see the world making incorrect decisions and want to find the most effective way to be a contributing part of that debate that shifts opinion and, um, bends the curve of some of our developments so that, you know, more people can live a better life. Uh, and it, it sounds sort of, you know, Pollyanna, but it, it it's, you know, if you don't contribute then, and you don't participate, then you just sort of have your, your victim to the flows. And, um, occasionally we swim against the current and we're happy to do it. And we have a blast doing it. It's the work of my life in particular, and I have a very supportive team. Uh, this is literally, I believe what I was meant to do when I was put on this planet, I've had a very good career, but this is the funnest thing I've ever done. Um, and, uh, it's just been a blast.
1: I mean that's that's epic and and you really kind of threaded the needle here on on, on the big idea for me is you can have a negative outlook on you know my, what might be coming down the pipe as it pertains to energy or commodities or food or the potentiality for conflict but there's still this op- embedded optimism of hey we started our own thing like we started eventually started the re- boutique research firm as well there's an optimism in any. Entrepreneurial pursuit, and then optimal optimism embedded in the presumption that you can make an impact, and like you said, bend the arc of uh, our lives and and, and time towards uh, more optimal outcomes for humans. That you know sometimes are, are are in a position where they can't influence influence it themselves. We're seeing you know climbing oil prices, climbing uh, costs to energy, and that's going to disproportionately affect the folks who. You know, don't have a choice about whether or not to fill up their their car with gas and drive to their minimum wage job and work for eight hours just to pay for that tank of gas to be filled.
0: Yeah, and I'm happy to give a little bit more context and background. It's just we had developed a really great book of business, and then COVID hit, and like many small business owners, you know, we had left very good jobs to hang up our own shingles, sort of the American dream, spend more time with our family, do what we love doing all day. I could even take a step back and and maybe share this with you and your audience. We had sort of done an analysis and when we were sort of working in standard jobs at big companies and with responsibilities, we we had sort of if you just audit your meeting calendar, we had found that we probably wasted 80% of our time. And we created all of the value in 20% of our time. And so the original firm idea that we had was let's just do that 20% and package it and sell it five times um and so if if you know our old employers would pay us 100 units of value for the value that we created and we created that value in 20% of our time we could market that 20% for 40 units of value and sell it multiple times and end up only doing what we love and making more money than we were making you know as executives and that worked it worked until covid hit and the mistake that we made um, in building our firm, and then look, as entrepreneurs, big or small, you, you have to learn from your mistakes and you make them. Like it's literally the only way to improve. Um, the mistake that we made was we had a very concentrated book of business from mostly publicly traded companies. And when COVID hit as a variable cost, you're the first thing that gets shut off, which we understood. Um, and we in fact called clients and let them out of contracts um, that they had with us because we were concerned about employees losing their jobs. And uh, we understood the the seriousness of the COVID pandemic, and and we were making an investment in karma. You know, we care very deeply about our reputation with our clients, and so we lost eighty five percent of our business almost overnight. And um, and so as entrepreneur, and many, 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 many small businesses in the world, um, and in the U.S. in particular, were facing a very similar predicament. And so, um, it, it's kind of devastating to put two two and a half years of your life into something that is going really great we had a record billing year you know the month before COVID hit and we had a record billing year the month after for the exact wrong reasons and so we had to reinvent ourselves and we took did a deep think like should we just dissolve and try to go get a job well it's not like the economy was conducive to um people with unusual resumes trying to get new jobs back in march or april of 2020 and so we decided to reinvent ourselves, and, and uh, we came up with the concept of helping content creators run their businesses better as a new product that we could offer as a consulting firm. And that was great. And we caught a couple of big clients and helped them a lot. And we learned the content creator business inside out because that's what we do as a firm. We're very thorough, and we're very systematic, and, and we have a framework for analysis of businesses that we assumed would apply to content creators, and, and sure enough, it did and then after doing that we had reestablished. just by doing that we established the totality of the business we'd lost by the end of 2020 and then some and uh, it was a really remarkable journey we met these great people and we started to study the content creator market and then one of our clients who's very supportive insisted that we should think about doing this ourselves and um, that we were good enough to do it ourselves and that we should we should put our stuff out there and so we did um we, we came together and created the Doomberg brand and created the icon of the green chicken. And, um, you know, plugged our nose and jumped in the pool last May. It's 10 months in and it's been a spectacular success. And, and I could have, you know, the, the week before COVID unfolded and the world fell apart, if you would have told me that within two years, I'd be spending almost all of my time you know, writing under an anonymous green chicken, I would have laughed at you. But it is truly the work of my life. i'm I feel incredibly blessed that I found it and the support of my team to encourage me to do it., um, it's been truly a remarkable journey, and I know that for the next twenty years, this is what I'm going to do because it was it is what I was meant to do.
1: And the ability to distill the complex, the opaque, to an audience that can't necessarily decipher or kind of cut through the noise, given your experience, is this really uh, powerful place in which to sit. And that's really where I wanted to uh, make sure we spent some time today, which is if you're just reading headlines, there are uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of different uh, calamities that are imminent, that are coming. And it's really you know the media business model fundamentally, to spike your uh, blood pressure and and get the engagement and get the click because of the you know as as humans we're biologically predisposed to be on the alert for whatever the the risk may be. And the thing that I've found from your writing uh, generally is uh, not only your ability to really hone in on very um, kind of unambiguous issues that like, there's there's actual substance here it's not just a, a headline to get a click but there's there's real substance here uh, but to, to make clear uh, the, the kind of underpinning infrastructure uh, that is that is causing some of these issues so maybe you know as you're thinking about the name doomberg um, and, and the ability for pessimism to always kind of sound smart if not always necessarily uh, be true in, in most of media and you have this background in commodities, what are some of the core things that you point to that, that you want to influence, but you really think people need to have greater fluency and uh, a greater understanding of in order to assess the real risks and to maybe not ignore, but but pay less attention to some of the things that are more superfluous?
0: So I think the thing that's most differentiating about our writing and the highest impact pieces that we've had Center around our learned views in the energy space and the direct and visceral connection between energy and life, and energy is life, and the consequences of the trade offs of the decisions that are before us vis a vis global warming, energy policy, energy mix, standard of living. These are all tightly intertwined. And um, unfortunately, many of our decision makers and most of our fellow citizens don't have the deep scientific training that we do and can't see or connect the direct consequence of a poor decision over here leading to somebody starving over there. And um, we're not naive enough to assume that there aren't always such trade-offs in life. But if you're going to make such trade-offs, at a bare minimum, you need to be informed as to what those trade-offs are and what the consequences are. And in particular, we are bounded by the laws of physics. And our politicians aren't trained in physics, and they aren't trained in the sciences. And they just assume that if they say certain platitudes enough, that they will become true. But as we say constantly on Twitter and in our writing and on various podcast appearances, the in the battle between platitudes and physics, physics is undefeated, and um, we are about to starve a lot of people. And so, you know, you sort of wonder where the sort of sense of doom might come from, where it's putting ourselves in the position of the people that are on the cusp of the starvation line, that now because of our foolhardy energy policies, will starve. Like this is real. There's a proximity effect to ethics that most people don't realize. But I've traveled the world. I've been to the slums of Brazil, to Mumbai. I've been to um, the rural parts of China. I've seen how most of the world lives. And most of the world lives on the edge of calamity. I mean, they just do. The Western experience is a a totally, I would say, fake existence that that we are so privileged to be living, that we're, we're so privileged to be living the fake existence that we do that we forget how fake it is and just how real the consequences are of our stupidity to hundreds of millions of people, real people, around the planet. And so another key attribute of the Doomberg think tank and the Doomberg team is we are human first. We, we do not believe that humans are a cancer on the planet and have no right to a decent standard of living. We, we believe the reverse of that. And um, to the extent that certain extreme elements of the environmental movement are secretly anti-human, um we be- we believe part of our role, um and this is something that you know alex Epstein has has taught us, um is part of our role is to expose just how anti-human some of these extremist elements are and put it to vote. Like I can tell you that the people that are barely getting by in Mumbai or in Sao Paulo, I know which side of the ledger they would vote on. Uh, and you know those are real people. there's they're they're somebody's mother, somebody's daughter, somebody's child, somebody's father, somebody's brother, somebody's cousin. And we're a deeply human first organization. And, um, you know, even if you are spitting into the wind, at least you could rest well knowing that you tried.
1: My background is an economics degree, and I remember being taught the Malthusian model of basically throughout most of history, when human capacity went up, uh, population came up right there to meet it. So that, that ability to kind of always be on the precipice of, you know, not having enough food, not having enough substance for people was a kind of perpetual state. And then we reached the industrial age. And they show the graph of that just kind of exploding apart where there's this capacity for excess. And it, you know what you're saying in terms of this, this uh, potential teetering really doesn't sound like a return to the Malthusian model. It sounds more like the ineptitude of certain policies that don't allow us to realize the kind of bountiful excess that modern technological advancements have made. Is, is there a, a kind of specific example of that that you would point to to make this really tangible for people, energy is life. um You know that that that's kind of operating um, up here in the metaphors. Is there, is there a tangible, like rooted to the ground example outside of obviously? You know, there's a war right now, Ukraine and Russia, two of the biggest wheat exporters. um You were you were calling about food concerns well before that broke out, and this seems to just exacerbate it.
0: Well, again, um, the worst thing that can happen to a doomsayer is to see the things they've predicted come true. I take no pleasure in being right, and in fact, I joked with friends, I wish I was wrong way more often. I would be happier if I was literally chicken little as opposed to accurate prognosticator, because these are real devastating consequences to real people. If I take a step back and build out the framework of analysis a little bit more for you, the the human endeavor is a constant unrelenting struggle against the forces of entropy. Disorder is spontaneous. This is just sort of a basic laws of physics, the basic laws of thermodynamics. And literally, Your standard of living is defined by how much energy you can waste to impose otherwise unstable disorder upon your local environment. Right angles don't exist in nature. Um, The home that you live in has a lot of right angles in it. It has a lot of um, stored potential energy in the walls and in the floors. And then, you know, you you we just take these things for granted in the Western world that when we turn on the tap water flows and that water is potable and it's drinkable and it's not going to make you sick and you don't have to boil it you don't have to go and gather wood to burn or get a fire going and get hot coals so that you can boil the water so you can make it safe to drink you literally just turn a tap on um you flick a switch and the light comes on you don't have to make a, a makeshift torch um we take these things deeply for granted in in the West. And the human endeavor is a constant unrelenting struggle. That's entropy. And energy is life. And if you just look at the hierarchy of energy density, at the top is nuclear, below that is fossil fuel. And then below that is renewable. And it is just undeniable that if we're going to proactively construct the supply of high density energy, and we're going to limit the proliferation of that life nourishing energy to the population, then people are going to die and standard of livings are going to fall. And this is a knowable and unavoidable trade-off. And we should at least have the conversation about it before we sell people on one vision and then stick them with the other. And so as we sit here today with energy markets falling apart, fertilizer prices skyrocketing, we're seeing the economic vapor lock of countries um, trying to limit their exports so that they can preserve whatever it is they have for the local population, or at least be seen as trying to do so. And all the things we've been writing about for the last five, six, seven months are beginning to come true. And, and it's scary. Like, so the, to break it down to your like original question, which is sort of real, there's going to be food shortages it's going to cost an enormous amount of money to feed your family. For the wealthy people among your listeners, that's going to be a nuisance. For the the wide depth of the pyramid of people in the world, it's going to be a life and death struggle. And as we've been warning from the very beginning, on the path from abundance to starvation is riot. People will riot. There will be social unrest. I expect public executions of 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 political leaders in a variety of countries, some countries that might surprise you. The path from empty grocery store shelves to the guillotine is a short one. This is, it's like we have learned nothing from history. And so as we arrogantly assume that we can uh, snap our fingers uh, without consequence and violate the laws of physics, the laws of physics will teach us who is
1: the boss. So one of the things that I mean, so so when I'm not doing this podcast, I'm running a marketing company, right? And, and you know, it's not a, a too large of a step to say that we trade in platitudes, right? Like the, to some degree, we're trying to help with the byline, help with the narratives that surround the firm that we're, uh, you know, supporting in some way, shape, or form that sure. we're serving. And, you know, a, a past guest, Ben Hunt, has talked about his framework for coming to markets, of looking at it through the lens of the narrative machine. Mm -hmm. These narratives are swirling around us. And, you know, I I can point to all these things. I just turned 30 uh, last year. And for for most of my adult life, I can point to these very intangible things, uh, at the very least appearing, if not in reality, seeming to matter the most. It's these digital platforms that we're giving our attention to. It is these narratives du jour that you know, either either that's associated with the green movement or these other kind of movements that that um, uh, rouse people and, and move them in different directions. And what I'm hearing, if you were to maybe take a step out and say 2010s, 2020s, uh, and like the the Venn diagram of similarities and differences, yes, narratives will matter. The digital platforms are here, but there will be a substantial recentralizing on the physical world as it pertains to where these decisions get made, at least in the Western world. As you're, as you're saying, yeah. it's always yeah. been the case in, in these um, less privileged corners of the globe. But for the folks that are probably watching this, that are that are more likely to have all the you know, latest Apple products and, and be listening to us on such devices, there has to be a recentering on the physical to even try and make sense. If, if you're purely consuming the narrative, consuming the platitude, you're... You're late, like even in the information uh, flow, sequencing.
0: Yeah, so I would say um, the wave function will collapse and um, we will ultimately be confronted with the physical limitations of reality. And I would argue that the last 20 years, we have uh, surfed the sea of a peace dividend and a, uh, an orgy of access that is um, historic in its uniqueness. And for many people listening, um, I grew up very humble. I grew up quite poor. I was hungry, like literally hungry a lot. And um and I still have those memories, you know, that you they say you're shaped by your experiences. And um I've struggled for food and and um I'm an immigrant to the United States and every day I wake up blessed that I was able to get here and to be able to thrive and to be able to carve out a career for myself and to be able to support my family. I, I, I feel deep gratitude for the country for having provided me with those opportunities. There's a whole swath of our population that have never experienced such things. And uh, they're real. And uh, they, they, they can do one of two things. They can bring out the best in people or they can bring out the worst in people. And one of my fears is that um, the Western society in particular is so untrained or living a life without access. That we might be among the global populations, ironically, we might be among the least prepared for what's inevitably coming. And I do worry about the social fallout and the stability of our institutions. And uh, Lord knows that we're not led by serious people in the US and that um, they don't yet seem to understand the world of hurt that's coming our way. And um, and so uh, you know, one of the things I do is, and one of the things we've written about is sort of preparedness starts at home, and and um, you know, you own your own sort of destiny, and um, best you understand what's coming, and and to be prepared to deal with it.
1: What what advice would you give to folks who who are uh, not as attuned to this type of pessimistic outlook uh, in terms of trying to make yourself more? Anti-fragile, because there's a whole there's a whole line of thought that says yes, it's going to be rocky, say here in the United States, but we've got the the Great Plain, America's breadbasket. We've got these, uh, you know, eventually uh, local sources of energy that uh, even can be tapped into. It's not like we have to go on some, yeah. uh, you know, cross-continent run to get the energy that we need. Um, so, 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 what perspective would you share there?
0: So it depends on your vantage point. If your vantage point is how well we have it compared to the rest of the world as we enter this period of high uncertainty, you should be very optimistic. If your vantage point is how capable are we of putting up with small deviations from the way the world used to be, this is the point that I'm trying to make, Got which it. is we are uh, spoiled. We, we know no other life than excess and ready access to The things that make life uh, not only livable, but pleasurable. Um, The internet always works. The lights always come on. The water always flows. The toilet always flushes. The gas tank is always full. This is a very rare existence. And so if you sort of are looking from the perspective of randomly being dropped on the planet, which country would you want to land on? Of course, this is landing in the United States and North America is a lottery. I mean, you've won the lottery of life. Precious few people in our society have the level of maturity and perspective to recognize that. And their basis is a much higher level of standard of living that came much easier than what I fear um, will be becoming um, down the road as as this war in Ukraine and Russia and the aftershocks and ripples flow through the pond. um, We're going to get crushed. Economics, you know, economic activity is going to contract. Europe is screwed. I mean, if you ask me where. Would I rather be dropped in the U.S. or Western Europe? Of course, it's a no-brainer. Right? The United States has so many advantages that we can be so stupid and still live a pretty good life. But uh, there's a lot of people who are used to living a certain life that are about to get a major disruption starting in Europe. But that that is going to create a set of dominoes that ultimately falls here. And I see precious little in our political leaders that indicate to me That they even understand what's going on let alone are prepared to think about it correctly and elucidate the proper responses for the maximum benefit for all of us we live in a deeply corrupt society we are led by deeply unserious people who have no understanding of science whatsoever who speak in platitudes and deny physics and there's going to be a consequence of that and we wish there wouldn't be there's an easier path but we're going to take the hardest path first which is going to implement the most amount of pain which is going to cause the most amount of social disruption. And then hopefully we'll figure out that maybe we should do things differently. And look, I wish I could be more optimistic and we, we are deeply optimistic people, but we are not led by serious people uh, and, and it's going to get hard for many.
1: So I uh, I'm try to ask the uh, question again in a different way. What are you doing to insulate yourself, your oh, family, sure. your community, protect your pack tangible steps because you know like so one of the things is um you know power we've got escalating uh power costs some people are going to say well i'll install uh solar panels or i will you know like what are some of the things you believe in see see as viable
0: wonderful great so security starts at home and um i I counsel our clients and our friends with the following Um, if you own a home and you pay home insurance you don't begrudge the fact that you spent a hundred dollars a month to the insurance company at the end of the year if your home hasn't burned down um, you're happy that your home hasn't burned down and you've quote unquote wasted that hundred dollars a month so you are willing to buy insurance insurance is a losing bet integrated over your life you will waste money buying insurance but you do it anyway for good reason because you want to insure against catastrophe so i would say and what the way that i live and try to counsel my friends to live is you must consider that the necessities of life are worth buying insurance against. And I view my home as a factory. The product of my factory is the health and well-being of me, my spouse, and my children. And I care very deeply about that. And my factory has inputs and waste products. The inputs into my factory are electricity, water, natural gas, and goods and services. The Amazon man, post office, and postperson. And the outputs of my factory are waste human waste and garbage and you have to have a plan for if any of those six inputs slash outputs are disrupted and what is that plan and literally just thinking about your home in that framework puts you in the top five percent of people because they've never even given it a second thought so i have a plan for if the water gets turned off if the natural gas stops coming in if the garbage stops being picked up or you know, the, the city sewer stops working. These are all low probability events with substantial negative consequences if you're unprepared for them. And so I I am an unabashed uh, prepper. I think about preparedness. I think about the responsibility of the well-being of me and my spouse and my, and my children. I take that personally. I don't rely on the state to provide me with uh, that insurance. I certainly rely on the state for all of the tangible things that a well-run state gives to society and we certainly benefited from it including a good education and all those other things but in an emergency i uh, have a detailed plan across all six of those dimensions to you know in the the sort of level of preparedness that i have for my family is we could lock our front doors for 30 days and lose access to all six of those things And live a relatively comfortable life and my theory is if the world has collapsed so bad that 30 days isn't enough i probably don't want to be living in it
1: yeah and it's also important i guess to recognize that like you've said through most of history uh it's not been a given that all six of those were taken care of by an outside party so it is not only learnable but attainable to be able to take more control and sovereignty over those elements because there, there, there's a well-worn path of humans being able to handle that in some way, well, shape,
0: or It way. used to be that we would store food for the winter. <laughs> the harvest mattered a lot because you would preserve the food to get you through the long, hard winter. Now we just go to the grocery store and food is there. And that's great. I hope it continues. Believe me, I'm the last person in the world that wants to um, test my preps. <laughs> you know, And we tested our preps. So we had a local emergency. And- in our community, and we hosted um, nine people in our home over a period of several days as this emergency unfolded, and we were blessed because we were able to provide food and comfort and warmth and drink, and protection for their pets, and um, we were able to help them get, you know, protect their homes or get back on their feet if their homes were damaged because of this emergency, and um, we were very blessed to be able to, have, to be able to have done that, and and I feel like that event, which was a, a few years ago, validated. My personal decision to be sort of independently sovereign or as you say anti you know anti-fragile and i can assure you that all nine of those people are a grateful and be far 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 further along on the preparedness uh, journey after that that experience you know until you have to flee your home because of an emergency and uh, to discover what a prepared home looks like um once you have that visceral experience then it's sort of it's unforgettable. And, and again, I, we're not, um, I don't have a bunker with, you know, like 50 firearms and I don't have uh, 20 years worth of food um, stored in a shed somewhere. Um, I have a detailed plan for what our family response would be to losing any or all of those six key dimensions for up to 30 days. And that's it. And the rest of it is sort of, I sleep well, because at least I know Um, if the power goes out for the next 30 days, I have a detailed plan for that. And one really important thing that I would say for anybody who is interested in doing this, and and maybe this is going deeper than you, you were wanting to go before we started talking, but-
1: This is fantastic.
0: If you buy things as insurance for an emergency, they're not preps until you've used them in a simulated emergency to see whether they would work. So I'll give you an example. If you buy a generator because you want to be insulated against the power going out and you just assume that since you have a generator, you'll be able to run your fridge and your food won't spoil until the power gets restored. Until you've actually unboxed that generator, put the oil in it, put the gas in it, started it and ran your fridge with it for an hour or two. It's not a prep. It's just stuff. And the only thing that converts stuff into a prep is to actually use it for the purpose that you're acquiring it for vis-a-vis your insurance policy. And so I have a basement that has a sump pump in it. Water comes into that. And if the power goes out, it could flood our basement. The generator is just a thing in a box until I have successfully run the power cable from the sump pump to my generator in my driveway and successfully operated that sump pump using that generator um, you might have alternative cooking means until you've made a meal with those alternative cooking means they're just stuff they're not preps they're just things in a box and i can assure you that the very worst time to implement a prep for the first time <laughs> is during an emergency and i'll tell you a story um, during the same emergency i described you where we had nine people living in our homes, I went to a friend's place who had lost electricity, and they had a generator, but they'd never used it, and we decided, hey, we're going to save your deep freeze. Let's let's get this going, because there's a lot of meat in the deep freeze and all that other stuff. In. Of course, he'd never started it. We pulled it out of the box. There was no oil. The oil didn't come with the generator, <laughs> and you're sitting in the middle of a local emergency with a thing that can't be started because there's no oil. Now, luckily, the neighbor had oil and had no generator and we could run an extension cord to the neighbor's fridge as well and so the neighbor traded us oil we got the generator started and we kept two homes going that was a very deep lesson to my friend which is until you actually use this thing in the line of fire it's just a thing it's just a paperweight it's just a thing in a box and so simulating sort of hey you know if um if the toilet stopped flushing, what would I do? This is very. That's actually the thing that people plan the least for. That is the quickest way to make your home unlivable. But that's a, probably a less palatable story for this podcast. But it, it, don't, don't, that's the mindset, which is um, until you've tried it, it's just.
1: And hopefully, that then contributes to some optimism, knowing that at least your family, your kind of local community, uh, yeah. is is insulated to some degree.
0: Uh, to the extent that you can and look i mean um there's only so much you can do and this is a deep rabbit hole you can go down and and i would not encourage people to go too far down it that's why i kept myself at 30 days because there's literally no end to it if you just say well 60 days is better than 30 (laughs) you know and 90 days is better than 60 and next thing you know you're you know sitting in a warehouse full of um, mountain house uh, freeze-dried food it's it's only so far you need to go because in the realistic scenario the thing the way i try to Instruct my friends on is how much of your edge risk do you want to take off and at what price? The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co.
1: So, I, I want to, uh, that was some really edifying uh, insights into the micro. I want to go up to the macro a little bit and just help people uh, you know, make everything that's going on a little, a little bit clearer, a little bit less opaque. Um, you said something earlier in this interview about, uh, leaders that might be in more trouble than one would suspect. So maybe there's, you know, just historically, uh, troubled, unstable, uh, areas of the world that, you know, like a nation state framework was imposed on them. And that's kind of a, a, an unnatural, uh, Skin that they're they they've been shedding off in some form for even through this peace dividend stable time, what are some of the areas of the world that you foresee instability, greater parts of instability, including Western Europe, but just wherever your mind goes, that uh you know you you hope to be wrong, but you you don't really see the physics pointing towards anything other than uh, really rocky road ahead.
0: Well, that's one of the the big elephant in the room, of course, is the stability of the. Chinese Communist Party, um, and Xi Jinping's attempt to solidify his leadership for life this year um, in China, and I think that's a, a vastly underreported story. And I think he is not nearly as secure as most analysts believe. And and if you think about sort of the the economic black swans, that might seem obvious in hindsight. Uh, we would point to. The stability of the chinese communist party and the paranoia of the chinese communist party vis-a-vis its perceived stability internally and and this is a point that i don't see enough people making but and look I, in my executive career i traveled to china four times a year for a decade I, I i wouldn't consider myself a geopolitical expert but if you've got 40 chinese stamps in your passport you probably have some basis of of uh framework to do some analysis and um there's one thing that the Chinese Communist Party cares about over and above everything, more than Taiwan, more than Hong Kong, more than defending itself from America and the, the you know the sea of China. It the thing that the Chinese Communist Party cares the most about is domestic tranquility vis-a-vis food inflation. Period. And that is a framework that too few analysts in the West used to analyze the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party. And with the energy crisis in Europe spilling over to China because of their interconnectivity with regards to the LNG market because they're bidding against each other for the same carriers, the price of energy in China spiked. And early and immediately, the Chinese Communist Party began to take actions to insulate their domestic population against the food inflation fiasco that they knew was coming. And this is why we wrote a piece you know, in October called Starvation Diet, which we believe was pretty prescient in predicting the consequences. You, know, you never know where they're going to flare up, but you know that like um, you, you're pressing the balloon and it's going to pop out somewhere else. Um, the Chinese Communist Party limited the exports of phosphates, which are key inputs into the production of fertilizers back in late September. And that was a huge siren for the Dunberg team. And we knew that the dominoes would fall from that, and they have. And um, the behavior of the Chinese Commerce Party makes perfect sense if you understand what the fundamental framework is and the fundamental prism is through which they view the sort of robustness of their uh, attachment to the leadership positions that they currently hold. With fertilizer prices spiking, energy prices spiking, farmers planting less and yields being lower because there's less fertilizer and the economic vapor lock of countries reducing exports of their own specialties, whatever it is that they do, that is sort of globally competitive, you're going to see huge food inflation in places like China, India, and sort of the emerging economies, the BRIC economies, Brazil, Russia, India, China, that is going to lead to systemic instability uh, and then I do fear that these regimes are going to counter that using all the tools of technology that we in the West have foolishly enabled them to create this uh, surveillance state. Um, that the the confluence of food inflation, g up for sort of reappointment for life, certain fa- factions in the Chinese Communist Party perhaps thinking that's not such a great idea. Um, we could be in for a very interesting 2022 in China um but at the same time nobody would have had sort of the uprising in kazakhstan on their bingo cards for early january like you just don't know when these pressures are going to uh explode onto the scene in in very unpredictable ways but if you sort of ask me at the highest level where am i watching the most where am i checking the headlines where am i texting my friends in china to sort of even though they have to speak in code because they understand that all the texts are being monitored um the transition of power from Xi as a temporary leader to Xi as a permanent leader is the big move on the chessboard that I'm watching very closely for 2022.
1: And another another part of that, once again, the, the spoiled Western world, I'm going to start using that a lot. I think that's a really helpful uh, framework for people. The spoiled Western world, we're also spoiled by the fact, and this is often taken for granted and, and lamented by some, that we have this release valve in the you know, flipping back and forth from red to blue. When we're unhappy with this regime, there's a correction to the other regime, and they're all they're, they're all corrupt. They're all trading in platitudes. But at least for the psyche, you have the ability to really do like the the Girardian scapegoating mechanism of you know throwing down like you know scapegoating and then moving on to some alternative. Whereas in one of these single party regimes, uh, the, the reason they're s- every leader should be, but they're so sensitive to something like food insecurity is there's no one to pass the buck to. There's no one to paste the blame to. Obviously, Xi could be that scapegoat if things or when things get really dire. But that is a, a, another element of the, the uh, chessboard there that we don't necessarily see in, in other markets.
0: And more so than voting and more so than the perceived ability to select our leaders. The thing that scares me the most and the thing that, um, I see, um, degrading the most is at least over here, we have the freedom to express ourselves, to publicly express our disapproval of certain leaders, to protest, to assemble, to exercise our first amendment privileges, uh, freedom of speech. And the thing that is most alarming that we've seen, even more alarming than, you know this is going to sound you know silly to some, on par with the alarm that we see with what's going on in Europe and the oppression uh, that we're seeing in China, the reason why it matters more to us is because it's more visible and we're closer to it. The events that happen in Canada and the retroactive, making retroactively illegal the First Amendment right of donating to a cause that you thought was, uh, was something that you agreed with and the freezing of the bank accounts without due process and the stifling of speech and the, the uh, libeling of, of everyday Canadians as you know, racists and Nazis and uh, extremists terrorists that uh, deserve to lose their banking privileges is a third rail of politics that we are shocked that a Western duly elected leader albeit with uh, not even a plurality of the vote. You know, Trudeau was only elected with 30% of the vote. For Trudeau to retroactively freeze the bank accounts of his political opponents without due process and to proudly do it uh, is shocking and is a, a huge degradation in the, what we perceive to be, you know, Western freedoms. And so you might be naive to think that your vote matters at the booth, um, and that there's any real difference between the parties here in the U.S. or the, you know, the fragmented uh, five party system that exists in Canada. But at least you never worried about if you tweeted something that a politician didn't like, you might lose access to your credit cards and you might not be allowed to participate in modern society for a view. This is a deeply troubling thing that far too people, far too few people are paying attention to and um, is far more. Like what the Chinese Communist Party does from our perceived vantage point over here, than what we would ever have imagined would occur in the Western uh, in the Western democracies. It's very scary stuff.
1: So, Dunberg, you've you've left a, a really kind of fat pitch in my strike zone here, which is to start talking about crypto. I don't actually want to do that yet because one of the um, best things, to, yeah. uh, well, well. One of the best things you can do as a podcaster is to wait till the end to start talking about crypto because you'll lose some of the audience. And candidly, <laughs> it's too easy to go there in a podcast. So, yeah. what I would actually yeah. prefer to explore with you first, and then we'll get to that, is trying to unpack the why. And what, and and, and, and this very broad. So, I'll, I'll try to make clear what I'm what I'm alluding to is you've talked about number one, there being a peace dividend. Uh, that has led to this excess, and and people could also you know point to concepts like entertaining ourselves to death, where it's just you know we have the low calorie hype um, kind of uh, blood spiking type of headlines, reality TV, these things that are distracting, very kind of impractical, non-essential um, information diets, and like you're saying, there's the underreporting of something like. Uh, Xi's pursuit of, uh, you know, uh, lifetime leadership of China. There's underreporting of the financial censorship happening in Canada. Candidly, I just think there's in general underreporting on here's how, uh, you know, the commodities markets work, which is what opened the door, like you said, the very beginning of this conversation for the opportunity to start this Duneberg brand and have such an impact on people because there was a, obviously a, a thirst, a hunger for this type of information. And if you you go a little backwards looking for the last 20 years or so, is it as simple as saying with X, you know, with excess uh, pigs were able to get fat, we didn't, we were able to take our eye off the ball or are there other forces, causes at play that have led to such a blind spot where, like, even I would say, my smart friends, like, like genuinely folks that I would point to, they're educated, they've got their head screwed on sh- uh, straight. They don't have, like, many politicians, some sort of perverse incentive to pull the wool over their and others' eyes. They're just not sensitive to it. H- how how would you unpack that with me?
0: I'd say the real innovation, for better or worse that makes this era different than all the others is the power of the social media algorithms to divide and conquer and to foment negativity and to foment um, panic and to foment ignorance. So that dopamine hit that comes from, um, you know, only having people in your feed that agree with you and like what you say and respond favorably to the things you post. Um, And the power of the algorithm to decide what gets placed in front of you um, is the real sort of um, the real difference between today and, say, crises of the past. And uh, there's pluses and minuses. Look, I mean, Twitter is fantastic and Twitter is terrible. And um, we spend a lot of time on Twitter. The signal to noise is terrible, but the raw information that you can get in real time can give you a huge advantage. And you just have to become accustomed to understanding what is propaganda what is likely propaganda what is probably true and what is probably authentic but incorrect and you get skilled in doing that over time Um, but that you know this ability so you know it's very standard i mean this is well-worn territory the the algorithms are optimized for engagement and negativity drives engagement and so the angrier that Twitter can make you, the more engaged you're going to be, the angrier that Facebook can make you, the more engaged you're going to be. And we've allowed these monopolies on social media to, to shape, dictate, participate in the social discourse in a way that nobody conceived possible 15 years ago. And it's a real serious problem. And then worse than that, one of the things we've been writing about and arguing about from the very beginning, I think our second piece addressed this. Um, our, our beliefs and expectations can be shaped by people who don't like us. The social media platforms can be manipulated by outside regimes who are um, otherwise negatively predisposed to our social political objective. And so just to give one example, uh, this is the first inflationary burst that we've had in the era of social media. And uh, the classic economics textbooks tell us that Inflation is at least in part driven by inflation expectations, and we would argue, because of our weakness and our addictions to social media, those expectations can be manipulated by people who don't have our best interests in mind. And so, it's a, sort of a classic thing that we've written about, which is, you know, TikTok is a Chinese company. And TikTok is controlled by the Chinese, and TikTok, you know, decides. A very powerful algorithm. Very addictive algorithm. Anybody who spent any time on TikTok will tell you that it is. Uh, Deeply pleasing from a dopamine perspective to just let the algorithm put things in front of you that you're enjoying. What happens when China decides to spook America vis a vis inflation and weaken the dollar? So, when the first $20 Big Mac goes viral on TikTok, is that because people want to see that or because the Chinese want us to see that? So, we are in an era of real inflationary pressure where for the very first time, our collective inflation expectations can be manipulated by people who don't like us. And I believe, and we have written, and we've argued, that the, the Federal Reserve is not only prepared, they're, they're ill-prepared for it, they have no idea that this is real. They're still sort of working on the analog models of the uh, of the era when the Tandy 1000 was the highest-end laptop you could buy. Those days are gone. And and inflation expectations can be manipulated and and the proliferation of social media makes it a very, very dangerous time.
1: Well, you, you, you've ratcheted enough that we can't, we can avoid it no longer. Now we're talking about inflation in conjunction with financial sense, censorship. There's gotta be at least one listener that's, you know, screaming in their car or their gym or wherever they are. Bitcoin, Bitcoin, yeah, Duber, Bitcoin, Bitcoin <laughs> uh, dissuade us.
0: Uh, we wrote a piece called uh, what Canada means for crypto. And, um, the, the key conclusion for us in that piece, which we, we were able to thread the needle of simultaneously annoying the crypto bros and the gold bugs. Crypto is not money, and neither is gold. Money is what the government says it is. These are political problems, not technology problems. If Justin Trudeau decided to shut down Aaron Watson's bank account, no amount of crypto in a cold wallet is going to get you the ability to transact for the food, water, and medicine that you need to live a healthy life. Um, there are three elements to the definition of money. Money is a, a medium of exchange, a unit of account, and a store of value. And Bitcoin fails the unit of exchange. You couldn't take your Bitcoin and go buy things with it in Canada if Trudeau froze your bank accounts. Um, it's a store of value in theory. You might be able to put the flash drive that contains your you know your keys, in your pocket and walk across a border and have something that you can start life over with in a new environment. But as a test of what money is, it failed. And on top of that, the US government and the Department of Justice are very skilled in tracing the permanence of the blockchain. And um, they will decide whether you're allowed to transact. They will decide whether you have any value. And so to the Bitcoin maxis that are listening, who might be annoyed by what I'm saying, I would say that you have diagnosed the problem correctly, but the solution is irrelevant. It's not workable. We need political intervention. We need to raise the awareness of the threats to the liberties that we have at least may perhaps naively assume that we enjoy. And no amount of uh, of uh, Bitcoin on a, on a cold storage wallet is going to save you when the government decides to come get you. And they have the capacity to do so without recourse if you listen to Justin Trudeau.
1: So that sounds very similar to uh, Mike Green's perspective on, on Bitcoin generally, and, and the the desperate need that we have for political action. By um, I don't even know how you would categorize the the, the folks of people that have diagnosed the problem. It's certainly, in my mind, a minority, and a, a minority yeah. that is kind of more the opt out minority than the opt in minority in terms of participation. Would you Would do you feel like that's fair, or maybe not?
0: Yeah, and I should finish the idea to be very fair to the crypto bros. Same thing holds to gold, to the gold bucks. Good luck taking your gold eagle and trying to pay for some milk and bread and eggs at the grocery store when the government has turned off your credit cards and and frozen your bank accounts.
1: Well, how Uh, about this too? How about about this? I'm sorry to cut you off, but you you referenced the trade. The trade of we got the generator working with the neighbor's oil in exchange for it. Yeah, okay. But if all you have
0: left is barter, that tells you just how powerful the government is.
1: Right. And, and and no one was thinking about gold coins or bars that they Correct. probably didn't even have on site. Like That wasn't the thing and, that mattered.
0: And nobody was thinking about Bitcoin either.
1: Right. So
0: when it mattered the most, both gold and Bitcoin failed. Uh, if you were a Canadian, and they still exist, by the way, this is an underreported scandal that Trudeau is still punishing his political enemies. This is a freaking G7 country. Justin Trudeau, has 30% of the popular vote in the last election, his party does. They run a first-past-the-post political system, which is, I think, a scandal in itself. Justin Trudeau is actively punishing his political enemies for exercising their freedom of speech using the most dastardly weapons a state can point towards its its population. This is the nuclear weapon to unperson somebody, to make them unable to transact in the modern economy without. Due process, without recourse. This is a scandal of epic proportions that we would typically have ascribed to you know, the Chinese Communist Party. So when you needed it most, ha- I don't care if you had 100 Bitcoin on a flash drive, you had nothing. So Bitcoin is not money. Bitcoin is a is a medium for speculation and Bitcoin is a theoretical store of value, but it is not a medium of exchange. It just isn't. It won't ever be. The government decides what money is. If you want
1: Bitcoin to be money, you need a new government. So in terms of some of these changes, you referenced the the Kazakh, uh, you know, uh, up unrest being really, really hard to predict, right? Mm-hmm. And something like China feels mildly more predictable, if not necessarily uh, very clearly on a time scale that's easy to define. On, on the other side of this, some of the arguments that I've seen are, you know, certainly in the face of crises, people can come together, start a new institution that's a democratic uh, republic that that has, you know, these kind of embedded rights that uh, have inspired past uh, political rev- revolutions. But there's also the potential for, you know, different more authoritarian leaders to step in in in, in the chaos of of these crises. I don't know how familiar you are with. The you know some of these these arguments I've seen are like neo monarchists uh, as either a solution or a potential outcome of this type of unrest do, is that the type of thing that you would see happening in more because we we have that in Putin it seems like we are uh, you know trending that direction in, in China and you know do you see a, a world in which that's actually more pervasive?
0: Well, I mean, I again, I don't want to annoy perhaps the base of Toonberg, but we came very close to it uh, in many ways with Trump. Trump had certain tendencies that made us very uncomfortable, and uh, however justified he might have thought his behavior was, and however um, distasteful the the sort of political leadership was that uh, he replaced, I mean, if, if left completely unchecked, I suspect that we might be in a slightly different position here in the United States. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is a huge risk. I, th- I do believe, I mean, fundamentally that um, representative democracy is not the natural state of society. It is a a it is a, an exception to an otherwise relatively unblemished track record of monarchy slash dictatorship slash authoritarianism. And it's very easy for people to get sucked into such regimes because as long as it doesn't feel like it's happening to you in the moment when the major power shifts, then you don't object to it. And this is why we got so loud around Trudeau and this, um, you know, his behavior vis-a-vis the truckers. We get sucked up into the team sport and we just assume since it's happening to the other team and I'm on this team, it's going to be okay. Well, the other team might get into power someday and that precedent is dangerous and everybody should object to it now. Um, so I, I, I would say that we are much closer to the press, you know, to the precipice that, than many people would imagine. But then again, that's why it's called Doombar, So
1: Well, this has been intensely educational, um, hopefully eye-opening for folks that uh, ha- have not heard this pers- perspective before. I want to aim towards asking our standard last two questions, and we're going to make a, a impassioned plea here shortly to subscribe to the Doomberg substack. But before we do uh, ask those last questions, was there anything else that you were hoping to share today that I didn't give you a chance to? No, I think it's been a
0: great discussion. If uh, probably <laughs> went a little darker than both of both of us thought it would, but we're in in kind of dark times, and it's important to be realistic about things and to appraise them and to uh, to at least educate yourself on what's going on so that you can be best prepared to respond to it.
1: Yeah, I I know that from my vantage point, for for many people, the pandemic as a as a kind of March twenty twenty catalyst for you know taking a different posture, but really. You know, candidly, since I first came across the Peter Zion stuff, it's, it, it's been something where I have uh, personally within my family and then more broadly out to my community, try to think through how to take a posture. I've used anti-fragile earlier in this conversation. And, and part of that is seeing the board more clearly. And I think that you do that a really, uh, really, really effectively. I'm, I'm very grateful for the work you and your team do to, to put into that. And I'm going to make the hard pitch here to subscribe to the sub to Substack. Um, but uh, what other digital digital coordinates would you want to point people towards if they want to learn more?
0: Yeah, we, we only have two outlets for our content. One is doomberg.substack.com as you mentioned, and the other is on Twitter. We're very active on Twitter. and um, We view Twitter as sort of the front end of our product funnel, where we create original content on Twitter that we don't necessarily include in our Substack. Um, we are at at Doomberg T T is in Thomas, so if you just add T to the end of Doomberg, as it as it goes, uh, somebody was squatting on the Doomberg handle, and so we had to add a add a letter to the end of it. And we're we're quite active on Twitter. We enjoy the interactions, and uh, we have fun with the trolls. And um, you know, we're, we we do a lot of original content there. And so, but um, our real passion is our writing. And and uh, one of our rules is if we wouldn't write about it, we don't tweet about it. And so we tend to only tweet about the things that we have either already written about or we intend to write about. And uh, if we tweet about something long enough and we don't end up writing about it, we just stop tweeting about it. And so those are the two places where you can find us. And um, it's been a really spectacular run for us. And um, the growth has been very encouraging. And it's really, truly um, sort of indication that this is the thing we were meant to be doing.
1: Well, uh, I, I will I will make the the pitch one more time. It is a very high signal to noise ratio, and i I feel like I'm basically in the process of filtering in and out more good sources of perspective of information. I find uh, your stuff to be that, so I, I hope that people will check it out and subscribe and uh, learn a lot about how the world works. Um, actually, before we we give you the mic a final time, Doomberg to issue the challenge. What if if you could you know there's a there's a, a concept in startups of a, uh, of a, of, of venture investing of a call for startups where a firm or an investor will basically say like, I have this thesis, I have this idea, um, uh, or, or, I see this problem and I, I can't find the startup that solves it. And that's actually candidly how, uh, uh, benchmark ended up in the Uber investment because they had the thesis of on-demand kind of vehicle, ordering from a mobile device before they actually found Uber solving that problem. From your vantage point, I know that you really hunt for the kind of small boutique Twitter accounts that have a a high signal-to-noise ratio. Are there arenas or sources where you would love to find more content, see more um, insights being delivered that you can't find?
0: Boy, um, we sell ourselves to our clients as we live on the internet, so you don't have to. And so we pride ourselves on being connected, in the know, finding those accounts, reaching out, developing relationships with what we call sort of the um, the humble experts. And um, you know, there's, and so I, th- we don't feel like we're missing much. We do think that Substack is the future of reporting. We think that Twitter is the future of um, of of interaction. We do think there's a mega trend of the decentralization of entertainment and education. And sort of being part of that flow and creating the Duberg brand in the middle of it, it was sort of our, the reason why this is the work of our life. And so because we're on the Internet all day and because we've gotten good at recognizing signal and uh, eliminating noise, we've been able to curate some really great content, which is feeding an endless loop of ideas for Duberg to write about. Some advice I would give to people is if you're going to go on Twitter, you make lists, use lists, identify good people create lists on them and and don't let the algorithm decide what you should be looking at, take control over it. That is the one thing that is, is sort of the biggest piece of advice I could give people is recognize that the algorithm is fooling you, that your uh, group think is by design and that it's all optimized for dopamine hits and clicks. And that if you can take that control back to you um, and systematically decide to curate lists, another big piece of advice is I have a whole list of people that disagree with me and I check them regularly. I have a list of Bitcoin maxis. I have a list of uh, renewable um, you know, advocates. I have a list of anti-nuclear advocates. I have a list of people who uh, think the world is going to end because of global warming. Um, I like to see what they're saying. I like to understand you know, their point of view. And uh, if I can't negate it, then I have to learn something. Uh, if I can easily negate it, that's fine. It just reinforces my beliefs. Um, the sort of standard tricks of the trade and then you know or, or things like that but on top of that the harder it is for you to hear somebody say an opinion you disagree with the more likely it is that if you open your mind you will learn something and uh, far too few of the participants in the social media wars view life that way and i think that is probably one of the things that makes doonberg unique is that we are at least willing to understand and then negate and to polite respond to um to to things that we disagree with. And then, you know, I am for example, I'm happy to go and debate anybody about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency politely. Um I don't think that people who are Bitcoin maxis are bad people. I, I think they have authentically held beliefs. And if they are willing to express them politely, we'll engage anybody. Um so, you know, let's not lose fact that, you know, that lose lose track of the fact that we're all humans and that we're all sharing this planet and um that these technologies can manipulate us if we're not careful. Absolutely.
1: Um, I said that we'd we'd wrap up with the challenge here. Yeah, I feel like there was a couple embedded in that piece of advice, but uh, before I let you go, any uh, final personal challenge for the audience?
0: Yeah. So you had given me a heads up that this was a question that you ask everybody, which is, um, what is an actionable personal challenge? And I assume that the personal challenge would have the desired effect of um, self-improvement on the other end of it, if you were able to pull it off. So I would uh, give you um two of them if you don't mind maybe i'll take a little access and give two one is the very first thing i tell myself every morning when i wake up is something bad might happen to me but it's not going to be today and uh, it's just a great little mindset change that says like i've got today to live there might be something i'm worried about maybe i'm gonna like not get the job performance rating i want or maybe i'm not going to get the grade on the exam that i was hoping for or Maybe the date that I have later this week is not going to work out. I'm, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm not well beyond dating, but I'm just sort of speaking you know, in, in ways that your audience might, um, might resonate with. Whatever it is that's giving you concern, if you just wake up and the first thing you tell yourself is, something bad might happen to me, but it's not going to be today. I'm going to live the hell out of today. I'll deal with that tomorrow. It's a great way to start the day. Um, the second thing that I would say is the single greatest investment you can make is in skill development. It's the highest NPV, lowest cost. Um, I have lived a life where if I believe that spending some money or spending some time or exerting some effort on something will result in me learning a lifelong skill, that's the highest NPV investment, that present value investment I can make in myself. And I do that every day. What skill am I going to learn today? So, for example, I literally one of the key technology Skills for the Doomberg team is our ability to use our Bloomberg terminal. We pay a lot for that Bloomberg terminal. It's a key element of our business. And I try to learn at least one new function on my Bloomberg terminal every day. There's countless numbers of them. And I can now, you know, with a few keystrokes, pull up slightly more information that I could readily access before. And every day that makes me better. Um, So, skill development. Personal skill development is the single greatest thing. So, starting the day off with a positive mindset, and then finding at least one thing to learn every day, integrated over time, over thousands of days, makes you irresistible to prospective employers or or clients.
1: Fantastic! I uh, best investment is investment in yourself, and uh, I, I like that that framing. Uh, just to enter the day with some some gratitude and some positivity. Uh, Doomberg, we, we, we've hit both ends of the spectrum, optimism and pessimism. Uh, I think that's a, a, an apt metaphor for life and a, a valuable uh, experience. And listen, for me, for the audience, I appreciate you sharing your time and wisdom with us today.
0: Aaron, anytime. Uh, i happy to come back and it was
1: a real pleasure. We just went deep with Doomberg. Hope you're not there. Has a fantastic day. Thank you so much for listening to the end of my conversation with Doomberg. If you found this interesting, then I think you might also enjoy our past interviews with Tucker Max and Mike Green. Mike Green talks at length about the risks associated with index funds and with Bitcoin. and Tucker Max has a similar pessimistic outlook, and we discuss his doomer optimism in the face of that. Check both of those out and let me know if you like these types of conversations because we've got some more coming soon. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.